You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, good morning. My name is Dean. Thanks for joining and being here part of our church gathering here this morning. Uh, we have three books to cover, so I'm going to pray and then we're going to jump uh, right in. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for this day and to be able to gather as the church. Uh, we count that a great privilege. We ask we be people who are mindful of your grace, of your love, of your holiness, of your plan for our lives that's understood in the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. I ask you to keep the enemy out of this place, that you be with the other churches in our community as they gather today, and allow us to be truthful about who you are and what you've done. We are people who need Jesus. We are dependent upon you. And Lord, we ask that we will be confident today in your promises to us via the scriptures. We ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we're going to have one narrative, Jonah, and two of what are called oracles, uh, which is going to be Obadiah and Micah. An oracle, that sounds kind of like, it might be a word you don't really know biblically very well, but it's from the Latin to speak. And in the Bible, it refers to a divine pronouncement delivered through a human agent. So we're going to see Obadiah and Micah as those figures, and it's important to know that that is how God often spoke through the Old Testament, was through these divine, these divine pronouncements through human people, God's words through humans, and they were given this, really you could say, this task, this calling uh, to, be able to proclaim the words of God, like the actual words of God. So my job as a pastor is to proclaim the words of God. I don't have this luxury or this privilege to tell you that I had this word from the Lord apart from the scriptures. Uh, you don't either. Uh, this, we were not prophets. Uh, we have prophets that have already gone before us that were used by God to write the scriptures. And it's important that when we have a word from the Lord that we are very mindful of the fact that that word must come from the Bible. Uh, that's what we like to say regularly here. If you want to hear God speak, read the scriptures. If you want to hear God speak audibly, read your Bible out loud. Uh, so that's what we have for us today is the words of God. What an amazing thing. We have the scriptures. And, and I want to be someone who really doesn't just study the Bible and, and believe the Bible, but I want to like, really be a grateful person knowing that God has given us his word. Like, I want that to be a big deal to me. And I think it's probably still a growth area for me. It's so easy to take things for granted when I have an office with like six Bibles on the shelf and commentaries everywhere and sermons I can listen to anywhere. Uh, it's easy to take for granted how incredible that is that God has actually given us the scriptures. Like we actually have the words of our God. So as we go through the Bible in a year, keep that in mind how amazing it is. And here we are, these people, these created people, and we have access to exactly what our creator wants us to know and has wanted his people to know throughout history. So we're in the book of Obadiah, is where we're going to start, an oracle. And we see out of the gate in verse 1, like God is not playing around. This is what the Lord God has said about Edom. As in, he's about to give you the word. <laughs> he's about to tell you what he has said about these people. Now, Edom, uh, we're told in the book of Lamentations, we see hints of this already. Daughter Zion, your punishment is complete, talking about Israel. He will not lengthen your exile. We've been through all of that. I'd love for you to catch up online on iTunes or on our website of these sermons throughout the Old Testament uh, that God's people have been brought into exile because of their rebellion and their sin. Uh, they're worshiping other things instead of God. He says, your punishment is complete. He will not lengthen your exile but he will punish your iniquity, daughter Edom, and will expose your sins. So Edom is the target of Obadiah's really kind of prophecy of doom uh, because it really is a display for us of God's hostility towards people that bring hostility towards the children of Israel. 
towards the people of God, and Edom really is, a, is really, say, is an object of that. The Edomites took delight in bringing disaster to Jerusalem and to God's people. The Gospel, Gospel Coalition explains it like this in their note on this. The Edomites, the descendants of Jacob's brother Esau, and one of Israel's neighbors to the southeast, should have assisted their brothers during the Babylonian crisis. Instead, they sided with the foreign invaders and even took advantage of Israel's misfortunes. Jacob and Esau. Esau was the brother that Jacob tricked uh, into stealing his birthright, where the line would now go through Jacob, the line all the way to the Messiah, the promise from Abraham. Uh, Jacob's name would even become Israel. So the Edomites are the people of Esau, and they have been mad ever since. And the book of Obadiah was written to simply speak a warning. And it's an important warning for all of us. But not just a warning, also an encouragement and a word of hope to God's people. So a warning to those who are not God's people, and an encouragement to those who are, and that is this, that God sees, God cares, and God repays. That's important. God sees, there's nothing hidden from him. God cares. He's not just going to let his people be treated in such a way forever. And God repays, as in he has the final word. Maybe you've heard it said before that vengeance belongs to the Lord. That's, that's a, it's a biblical fact. It's important for us to believe that. That God is the one who ultimately will repay evil. Ultimately, it's not my job and it's not your job. God will repay evil. And also, God sees. Like, he sees your actions. Like, he sees our sins. Like, he can't be fooled. It's, it's not a secret to him. How often am I more worried about someone else finding out about something in my life than I am the reality that God already knows? Like, God sees. And also, God cares. These are his people that he has made a covenant and a promise to. And he is for them, the scriptures tell us. Like, he is their God, and, he, and they are his people. So even though it's Jerusalem's fault, their unfaithfulness that brought them out of Israel into exile, uh, Eden was one of God's tools for bringing judgment upon God's people, but the Lord has tied himself to his people, and he's going to punish those who hurt his people. And we're told that eventually Jerusalem will be restored and blessings will extend to all the nations, all the way to the Gentiles who will have a chance to believe in the Lord. See, God's own covenant people who have already experienced God's judgment they're going to receive restoration from their God. And the book of Obadiah really ends with the promise of the kingdom of God. It's the shortest book in the Old Testament. It's like 21 verses. It's like, Edom, you're terrible. Here's what I think. I'm going to deal with you. Like, I have a word for you. And then my people, I haven't forgotten about you. I see, I know, and I care. You can trust me. Verse 17, but there will be a deliverance on Mount Zion, and it will be holy. The house of Jacob will dispossess those who dispossess them. There's a reverse happening here. From God's people being oppressed to God redeeming his people, taking vengeance on his enemies. Then the house of Jacob will be a blazing fire, and the house of Joseph a burning flame. See the two tribes there. See the two kingdoms, I should say, not tribes, the two kingdoms. But the house of Esau will be stubble. Jacob will set on them on fire and consume Edom. Therefore, no survival will remain of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. People from the Negev will possess the, east, the hill country of Esau. Those from the Judean foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. 
will possess the territories of Ephraim and Samaria, while Benjamin will possess Gilead. Like God's people taking back the land. There's a reversal again happening here. The exiles of the Israelites who were in Hela and who were among the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, as well as the exiles of Jerusalem who were in Sepharadad, will possess the cities in Negev. Saviors will ascend Mount Zion, the rule over the hill country of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. There's a lot of words in there. It gets my mind all going, all these pronunciations. But what's happening here? God will restore his kingdom. The kingdom of God is coming. This will not be forever. This oppression, this betrayal, this seeming like God has forgotten, it one day will be reversed. God sees, God knows, and God cares. And this saving ultimately will come from the promised one, from that seed of Jacob, whose birthright was taken from Esau, that will lead us all the way to Christ on a cross and an empty tomb. The shortest book in all the Old Testament, a warning to Edom, a reminder to his people, an assurance of the kingdom of God reigning and ruling. Then we get to another oracle, the book of Micah. And Micah continues this judgment against Israel and Judah for their turning away from God. Especially through their mistreatment, he narrows in more a mistreatment towards what we could just call weak and powerless people among them. Now they maybe have religion right in terms of the routine of religion, but they're not caring about the vulnerable around them. They're not caring about injustices around them. See, the book of Micah opens with God summoning the people of the earth to come and witness his judgment against Israel. He's like, everyone come see, see the wickedness perpetrated and promoted by the leaders, prophets, and priests in Israel is going to bring about the judgment of God at the hands of the Assyrians and later the Babylonians. He says this, listen to all you peoples. Pay attention, earth, and everyone in it. The Lord God will be a witness against you. Verse 5, all this will happen because of Jacob's rebellion and the sins of the house of Israel. This is deserved. God punishes as our sins deserve. The good news we read as the Bible continues is, rather punishing us as our sins deserve, because they do deserve punishment and he will punish sin. He punishes Jesus in our place. So there's an oracle here, a word from God against the sin of his people in the land. And here's the response from chapter 2, and this sounds so familiar to today. Quit your preaching, they preach from chapter 2. They should not preach these things. Shame will not overtake us. This is your classic, quit telling us what we don't want to hear. Don't preach that message. Instead, we want you to preach to us that everything is fine, that everything's going to be okay, that it's not that big of a deal if we rebel against God. Don't preach that message. How true does that continue today? Don't preach those things that are hard. Don't talk about those things that might offend. Don't, that's a bad church growth strategy to talk about the things that the culture celebrates and loves and to point them a different direction to God and his word. God is not going to be mocked here. And Micah's coming and telling them that you want a word from everybody else, I have a word from God. I have an oracle to tell you. That is that God is not happy with the actions of his people because there are an oppressed people around you, people of Israel, and you are ignoring them. You're acting like they don't exist. 
You're acting like everything is fine and God is saying that is not the way of my people. Like if anyone should know what it means to be oppressed, if anyone should know what it means to have foes around them, if anyone should know what it means to be weak, it should be my people who are dependent upon me that I led out of slavery, that I let conquer armies that were far greater than they were on paper. So all this judgment, but then we see something happen. What's amazing throughout the scriptures is there's judgment and there's always hope attached to it. To give us assurance that God really does keep his promise to his people. Bethlehem. This is chapter 5. Bethlehem. Remember that town? We talk about it every December. Bethlehem. Ephrathah. You were small among the clans of Judah. Joshua mentioned a bunch of towns and didn't mention Bethlehem. Pretty insignificant in people's eyes, besides David's family being from there. Besides that, pretty insignificant. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. See, we have the rest of the story knowing how all the Bible works together, so we knew that Jesus, that the Son is eternal. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. And we talk about every Christmas, that lady who gave birth. Then the rest of the ruler's brothers will return to the people of Israel. One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He will stand and shepherd them in the strength of the Lord. In the majestic name of the Lord, his God. They will live securely, for then his greatness will extend to the ends of the earth. He will be their peace. So there's turmoil, there's rebellion, uh, there's feuding going on, there's fighting, there's oppression, there's all of these things. And, and Micah's bringing it. I mean, God's telling them, he is an oracle. He's telling them God is not happy with you. Like God's judgment is upon you. He goes, but guess what's going to happen? There's some good news. Bethlehem, Bethlehem. There's going to be someone who comes from there. And they call this one a shepherd. That he's going to rule in a different kind of way. He's going to be kind. And he's going to be compassionate. And he's going to be loving. And he's going to care deeply for his people. And he says, and ultimately, he's going to bring you peace. Peace was such a foreign word to them at the time. They hadn't experienced peace in sometimes, most of them, in some of them in their lifetimes. And here's someone coming who is going to actually bring about peace. But not the absence of war. An actual peace with you to know that God is with his people. He says this in chapter 6. Now listen to what the Lord is saying. Rise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your complaint. We see mountains happen a lot in Micah. The, the usage of that word, the symbolism of mountains. And why that matters is, God has spoken to his people throughout Old Testament history. We see God rule and reign via mountains. Like Mount Sinai. We see Mount Zion, where Israel would flourish and would be prepared. Mountains is where people would go to meet with God. In the book of Exodus, Moses goes up to the mountain to hear from God. But now, all of a sudden, rather than us having to go and meet with God in a temple, in the tabernacle, on a mountain, the whole mention of Bethlehem is telling us that God now is going to come and he's going to meet with us. That he's going to take on flesh. That he's going to dwell among his people. In other words, that God is going to be with us. He's going to be with us. 
Listen to the Lord's lawsuit, you mountains and enduring foundations of the earth, because the Lord has a case against his people, and he will argue it against Israel, and God ain't going to lose in court. My people, what have I done to you, or how have I wearied you? Have I not the one who led you out of Egypt, who has taken care of you? Testify against me. Like, go for it. Bring it. Try it. Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from that place of slavery. What accusation do you have against your God who is holy when you are not? In verse 8, he tells us what he expects of his people. Mankind, he has told each of you what is good and what it is the Lord requires of you. And now you see a common Christian coffee mug or wall art verse about to happen. To act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. That this is the life that God calls his people to. To act justly, meaning to do what is right. See, our culture just simply uh, talks about just and unjust as a type of revenge. Where the biblical word just or justice is to do what's right. Now, God is calling his people to deal with injustices around them. God is calling his people in humility and in faithfulness to walk with their God and to act justly. Now, we like to just sort of pull out the justly part today in 2021, but don't want to talk about faithfulness and humility faithfulness means that I worship God as he is. I submit myself under his word. I, I don't tweak and, and turn and create a God to fit the cultural narrative of the day. That's also part of humility. It's, it's, a, it's a worship posture in my, in my daily life with the Lord, where I realize that he is God and that I am not. But what does it mean to act justly? It's important to know that there's a big difference between what we call today social justice compared to what we would refer to as biblical justice. As we see right here, the people of God should 100% be people of justice. But what does social justice as defined by the world today lack and not seem interested in? Forgiveness, reconciliation, and restoration. Oftentimes, all modern-day social justice wants to do is retribution. And that's the end game. These people are bad, eliminate them. They said the wrong thing, gone. They voted the wrong way, in my opinion, whatever you believe is the wrong way, out. That social justice is just retribution. And we do some nice things for people and feel better about ourselves, but really we're walking through with a bazooka and clearing anybody out of our way that doesn't agree. When biblical justice, biblical justice, does seek the welfare of other people. Biblical justice does see a need and meets a need. Biblical justice is not silent or in denial about oppression. Biblical justice cares about things like racial reconciliation. Biblical justice cares about the needs of, of children in situations they did not choose for themselves. But biblical justice always brings hope. It brings hope, not just a sentence or penance. It's important to know that. The biggest difference between biblical justice and a modern-day definition of social justice is that with biblical justice comes forgiveness, 
comes reconciliation and comes restoration, not simply repudiation. Very different things. So keep that in mind. Well, again, we're of a different, we're, we're citizens of another world, Philippians tells us. First Peter tells us that we're strangers and sojourners, aliens in a world that's not our own. Hebrews says, we, Hebrews 13, we look to another land, like a world that is to come. Like our ethics and our rules aren't of here. So it should rub a little and should bring attention a little when you hear about these kind of things. We even define the world's most precious term today, justice, even differently. And guess what? God's the one who created the word justice. Like, we're the ones who should care the most about it. But it doesn't come with a sledgehammer. It comes with us wanting to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with our God. And these people were not doing that. They got the religious, you know, kind of rituals right, and they were doing all the things they were supposed to do from a traditional standpoint while ignoring the needs of people around them. Like, do you know what it feels, I don't exactly know what it feels like, so I'm, I'm, you know what it probably feels like for people that have experienced racism when those who haven't just walk around and act like it doesn't happen? You know what that probably feels like for somebody? I don't know what that feels like. You know what that probably feels like for somebody? God has a word for us. Act justly. Love faithfulness. Walk humbly with your God. Like, you know what it looks like? It probably feels like we're someone who's been down and out their entire lives that had, had nowhere near the advantages that, that, that I have had and maybe a lot of you have had that maybe you're down and out in addiction or on their 25th job because they can't hold one over addiction or, and our first response is get it together. When our first response is no compassion, no empathy. Like, well, we're acting like people that know the rituals but don't care about people. Like we want to have a, be, want to be. I'm talking to myself here too. Like we want to be empathetic people. That's what that's what it means to be humble, to act, act humbly, right? Is to realize that maybe I don't have all the answers. Maybe I'm not the one that has things all figured out in terms of my life being the model for everybody else's. So I want to act justly and love faithfulness, and I want to walk humbly with my God, humility and forgiveness. And here's the good news he has for these people who have messed up. Thankfully, chapter seven. Who is God like you, forgiving iniquity and passing over rebellion for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not hold on to his anger forever. He delights in faithful love. What a description of our God and his love for his people. He delights in faithful love. Like that brings God happiness, faithfully loving his people. He will again have compassion on us. This is Micah who was like, you're terrible. And now he's going, guess what? God, God, God is for his people. He's a covenant with you. By for you, it means to carry out the promise he has made to you, that he is your God. What is that promise? That he will be with you till the end. He will redeem you and restore you and make you new and keep you and forgive you and give you salvation. He will again have compassion on us. He will vanquish our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show loyalty to Jacob. We have a loyal God who fights for his people. And faithful love to Abraham, the one he first made the promise with, and you, as you swore to your ancestors from days ago. And then we have the book of Jonah, a very famous book of the Bible. And Tim Keller says this about Jonah. He says, and he has the best work on it ever. So if you want to do some really good work on Tim Keller, or on Jonah, go to Amazon, Tim Keller, Jonah, 
feast in it. Like, it's the best. Uh, if you accept the existence of God and the resurrection of Christ, a far greater miracle, and there should be nothing particularly difficult about reading Jonah literally. Like, if you believe that Jesus died and came back to life three days later, you can believe that a big fish swallowed somebody. But that's, that, that's not a far jump, okay? Like, like, the resurrection thing is the craziest thing. And people gave their lives as a result of what they saw to be true. That is, they saw Jesus die, he appeared before them resurrected, they're willing to die because of it, not because somebody brainwashed them, because they saw it with their own eyes. So we see this, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, he says, get up, go to the great city of Nineveh, an Assyrian land, the enemy of God's people, but the ones we're talking about who are oppressing God's people, and preach against it, because their evil has come up before me. Remember, God knows, and God sees, and God cares. Jonah got up to flee Tarshish. He's like, I'm not going. Straight up. He got to flee Tarshish from the Lord's presence. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. I forget who said it, but I heard a guy say one time, there's always a ship available when you want to rebel. But there's always a way to do it. There's always a big worldly go for it ready for you when you want to rebel. He paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. So he's like, absolutely not. I'm not going. One, they're horrible people. They're Assyrians. We don't like them. And I don't think that I want nothing to do with those people. So Nineveh is the enemy of God's people. So he gets on a boat. This big storm happens. Everything was fine until Jonah came on. These guys on the boat are like, are you going to pray to your God or what? He's like, it's all because of me. You might want to throw me in the water. So they do that. And a fish swallows him. Did y'all see on the news a couple weeks ago that someone got swallowed by a fish off the coast of New England somewhere? Every Christian's like, ooh, see, you know, that kind of thing. It's, it's real, you know. I want to know what he was running from. I mean, it actually have to happen that God do that. Jonah, we see, he prayed to the Lord, who is his God. He never abandoned his faith in God. He just was rebelling. He believed there was more to be gained by disobeying God than there was to be gained by obeying him. So the Assyrians not being warned, not hearing God's words. So he prayed from the belly of this fish. He said this, I called to the Lord in my distress and he answered me. I cried out for help from deep inside Sheol. You heard my voice. God hears his people's prayers. Let that never be normal for you. That thought, how incredible that is. But it is normal for us in our relationship with Christ. He hears our prayers. When he threw me in the depths into the heart of the seas, the current overcame me like he thought he was going to drown. All your breakers and your billows swept over me, and I said, I have been banished from your sights. Yet I will look once more towards your holy temple. The water engulfed me up to the neck. The watery depths overcame me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. That's why I'd be like, just take me now. Seaweed, done. I sank to the foundations of the mountains. The earth's gate shut behind me forever. I'm in this fish. Then you raise my life from the pit, Lord my God. As my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, to your holy temple. Then he's reminding himself, those who cherish worthless idols, and he's thinking, like the people in Nineveh, abandon their faithful love. But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. And then one of the most greatest lines in all scripture, 
Salvation belongs to the Lord. He is the one who saves. This is a story here of resting in the security of God's salvation. And the fish symbolizes that. Even in his rebellion, he can rest in the security of his salvation. So then he gets another chance and to go back and do it again. And it's, it's, it's classic here because the fish spits him out and he's mad, doesn't want to go and goes and tells the people and they even hear the message and they're willing to repent. But here's what he says. Jonah's like, well, here's, here's what I'm mad at you. So afterwards, after he goes and tells him, he goes and like sits under this little plant leaf thing and he gets sunburned and he gets mad at God for the sunburn. But he's, just, he's, just, he's just mad. And here's why he's mad. I knew, I knew it. You're a gracious and compassionate God. You're slow to anger, a bounty and faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. We, just, we went through the book of Jonah like 10 years, nine or eight, something like that, nine years ago. We're going to do it again because it's a book that needs like a month at least. He goes, I, I knew it. Those sinful people, and you're going to forgive them. See, the struggle Jonah's having, maybe the story of this book is the question of how can God be both merciful and just? How can God be both merciful and just? Because here in Jonah's eyes, if he's simply just, then he has no mercy. He's not the compassionate God. And if he's simply merciful and just forgives everybody no matter what with no consequences of anything, then he's not just. So he rebelled in disobedience, and now Jonah is rebelling in self-righteousness. Out of the gate, he told God no and jumped on the ship of rebellion out to Tarsus, rebelling straight up in disobedience. And now he's rebelling against God in self-righteousness. A good parallel is the story of the prodigal son in the New Testament. In Luke chapter 15, you see the younger brother rebel against God in his disobedience, in his sinful lifestyle. You see an older brother rebel against God in his self-righteousness. It would be a great story for you to read later from Luke chapter 15. Here's what Keller says. Jonah wants a God of his own making. A God who simply smites the bad people and blesses the good people. Jonah and his countrymen are the good people in his eyes. When the real God, not Jonah's counterfeit, keeps showing up, Jonah is continually thrown into fury and despair. Jonah finds the real God to be an enigma because he can't reconcile the mercy of God with his justice. Jonah asked that question again, how can this work? How can God be both merciful and just? How can he forgive a people and even warn a people who have done such violence and such evil? And there's no way to understand that without the cross. That's the only possible answer to how God can be both merciful and just. Like only when we fully grasp the gospel will rebels like the people from Nineveh and pharisaical believers like Jonah will actually be changed by the Spirit of God. John Flavel says, Lord, the condemnation was yours that the justification might be mine. Where, where theologians call it the great exchange, where Jesus took on our sin, God is just, he's punishing sin, and we received his righteousness. So God is being just in the punishment of sin upon Christ and he's being merciful by not punishing us as our sins deserve. 
See, when we put our faith in Christ, we're counted as righteous. That is the perfect righteousness earned by Jesus has been what's called imputed to us. So in our turn, we can say, our, in turn, our sins are imputed to Jesus, who made satisfaction for them. God's wrath must be appeased by bearing the wrath of God against his people on the cross. A song we sing regularly here, because the sinless savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That's what's happening here. Jared Wilson writes this, that Jonah has a strong sense of justice, but it's distorted. Is it unjust for God to love the undeserving? The answer is no, first because God cannot be unjust. Everything he does is just because he is a just God and God is essentially holy, but he is also in and of himself love. But it is also not unjust for God to forgive sinners because God has a plan for the punishment of their sin. See, Jonah becomes himself a living picture of this by spending those three days in that fish. Jesus says in Matthew 12, 40, for as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights, the son of man, who is himself, will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. I have Vox Hey, we're back, okay. I was about to go Pentecostal preacher and have a handle on microphone. And Jesus becomes the one who leaps into the stormy sea of condemnation to calm the seas of God's wrath towards us. And instead of running away from God's plan for the forgiveness of those who don't deserve it, Jesus, the only actual sinful person to ever live, runs towards those of us who need forgiveness, ready to love, ready to die, and ready to save. It's not unjust for God to forgive sinners because he, he is actually punishing their sin only by putting it on Jesus instead of us. We call that the good news of the gospel, folks. And it's the best thing we have and why we talk about it every week. What we're gonna do now is we're gonna remember that together by taking the Lord's Supper. An opportunity for us, it's more than just a memory, it's bigger than that, but it's a time for us together corporately as a body to reflect on the good news of what Jesus has done for his people through his death. We're told that the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. That the Passover lamb was given to us where God could be just and merciful at the exact same time without contradiction. We're told that the Lord's Supper is definitely an act for believers, it's for the church. Uh, so that's something that if you're not a believer and you're a guest here today, we'd love to talk to you before you leave here today about what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ, to be able to know the just and merciful God. We have a care room out in the lobby, got people that are ready to talk with you and pray with you, have conversations, answer any questions you might have about what it means to follow Jesus and to give your life to Christ. So what we're gonna do now is, is take a time to remember this together. Jesus said, take and eat in remembrance of me. So before we do that, just to give you a chance to just have a little personal prayer time with the Lord, I'd love for you to just take a moment and bow your heads and just silently pray. Confess whatever sin you might have in your life, knowing that God is quick to forgive. He's slow to anger. He's gonna take your sins and throw them as far into the sea, into the depths of the water, we're told today in the scriptures. 
Take a moment just to do that. that Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he told his disciples this is my body that will, be, that will be given to you for you he said until I return he said take this bread and eat it in remembrance of me go ahead and take the bread now as I shared a moment ago scriptures tell us very clearly about the shedding of blood the ultimate symbol of death there is no forgiveness of sins. Jesus' blood was shed for us so God would be just and merciful. Jesus took the wine, took the juice, that's what we have here so everybody can participate. And he said, take this and drink it in remembrance of me. Go ahead and take the juice now. Let's pray together. Father, we are a people who remember today. We remember what it took for you to exercise your justice and your mercy. You, the holy God, dealt with sin and spared your own people. We are thankful for Jesus, the one who stood in our place. Lord, we acknowledge together the effects of what took place. We are forgiven. We are made new. Lord, we belong to you, adopted into your family, your sons and daughters. Lord, use us for your mission. Use us for your glory. Let us be unashamed of your gospel. Lord, we thank you for your grace. Thank you for your kindness. Lord, thank you you forgive sinners like us who are quick to ignore the needs around us, who are quick to rebel, quick to think there's more to be gained around you than actually in you. So Lord, I just ask we'll be so mindful of your love for us that our affections will grow for you and we'll love Jesus more than we love this world. Let be true of all of our lives that we know that our sins are many, but your mercy is so much more. How incredible. We worship you for that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together and sing some good news.